My privilege to be able to introduce to you here the uh, speaker for this morning, and it happens to be our newest staff member to have joined the church, and he was introduced to you last weekend as we rolled out our three initiatives that we have as part of our Mission Them uh, focus, and uh, he is now our presently our director of Geary Initiative, eventually to be the campus pastor of that new Geary location. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Ray Dix. And Ray has been a friend of Bethel for many years. He's actually been a, a pastor in the Geary vicinity for a couple decades. Last service, I said several decades, and he corrected me on that. <laughs> it's been a couple decades. and um, But he has been uh, just a wonderful uh, bastion and, and standard bearer of, for truth and for the gospel in that region. It's been wonderful for me to get to know him over the many years that we've known each other, just to see his zeal and heart and passion for the Lord, but also certainly for the people and the communities north of us, north of 30. And, uh, you know, Ray and I have spent lots of time together just having coffee and lunches many times, and one of those cough lunches we had about last winter just kind of led to this conversation of, you know, we should get a little more serious about doing this kind of real partnership together, whatever that might look like. And that conversation continued on, and Pastor Steve got involved, and the elders got involved, and eventually God just used that to open a door, and now Ray's here on staff, and will be uh, instrumental in us moving forward with this Geary uh, initiative that we have. And I'm so thankful, so delighted, overjoyed just to have him part of the team and very excited as well to welcome him to the pulpit to open God's word for us. So I hope that as he comes, you'll be anticipating hearing from the Lord through this, but also welcome him warmly as we want to do here as a church. So would you join me in that? And Pastor Ray, please come. Good morning, Bethel. Hope everybody is well today. I greet you in the name of the Lord. Glad to be here to celebrate uh, with you on this, the Lord's Day. And uh, we're excited. Um, little rain outside, cloudiness, cool weather. This is when you find out where the real Christians are. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. We fight through the drizzle. <laughs> All right. But um, I, I do, let me ask you this question too. How many people in here today had... Um, uh, a, a good breakfast this morning. Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Good breakfast. That's awesome. Good breakfast is important to start your day, don't you think? I want to share something with you. I actually was, came across a uh, study that was done, and four out of five doctors say that when you go to church after eating a good breakfast, if you hold back a amen, you'll get indigestion. I'm just saying. I, <laughs> Somebody's going to Google that. No, it's no study. There's, there's no study. I'm just kidding, just kidding. But uh, good to be here today. And um, we've got some folks here today from, uh, from our ministry, uh, from, from Berean Fellowship. Uh, and I, wanna, I want you to just give them a warm welcome. And, and uh, some, some of them are over here and sitting. Just thank you. Thank you. And we're just... We're excited because many of them are going to be a part of our new initiative, and, uh, and we're just excited about that. Uh, and, I, and one more person I just really want to thank. I think my cousin, Dr. Sabrina Reed, is here today, too. So let's give her a warm welcome, would you? Thanks. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, before we get started, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon our time. 
Lord, we thank you today for this opportunity to come together and to share in your word. We pray that what we say here today is pleasing in your sight. Grant us the insight and the knowledge of your word so that we would be able to speak those things that are truth and uh, be to the edification of our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray that the gospel will be made clear so that if there's anyone here today that does not know Jesus as Savior, that they would be able to clearly hear uh, your call to their heart to become a part of your family. This we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 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 All right. See, we got there. I found my amen corner right here. That's, that's right there. That's good. Um, today we're going to talk about a theme, uh, ethnicity and the church, the celebration of diversity. Ethnicity and the church, the celebration of diversity. And in doing that, I want to share with you a little bit about my journey and how I came to understand the manner by which God views his church. And also, it might help you understand some of what Pastor Steve's vision uh, is about and the vision of Bethel when it comes to, to uh, our Mission Them 2.0. And I want to start with, with my journey, though. I was one of those people that Pastor Steve talked about a couple of weeks ago, the early converted. Remember that sermon? The early converted. And I, I, I was converted and saved at a tender age of seven years old and through a vacation Bible school, a wonderful a couple had come and helped our church lead Vacation Bible School and uh, gave me a memory verse, uh, Galatians 6, 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, that shall they also reap. And much to, to I didn't know then uh, as I do now, but at the age of 16, I, I preached my first sermon. And that was actually the text of my first sermon. And when I go back and listen to it now, I'm thinking, you know, people didn't pass away from spiritual starvation. That's a good thing. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but the key thing here was just early in life, God just kind of came in, into my life. And I had this, this, this concept growing up of the church. And the church that I grew up in was all I saw the church to be. The people in the church looked like me. They, they, they prayed. They sang a certain way. And that was my concept and construct of the church. And that little church is uh, uh, First Baptist Church of East Chicago, Indiana. But as I, as I grew up in my teen years, the interesting thing is that my conception of the church really didn't change that much. Now, here I am, a teenager and interested in, in ministry as a life and, and feeling a call of God. But uh, my, my perception only changed to, to, to include now a, a loose network of churches. Some of you may, may have be familiar with district associations or state associations. But the truth of the matter was everybody was still just like me. And when we look at this. There is a, another paradigm, and my new paradigm of the church and the expansive nature of God's kingdom really didn't begin until I was well into my pastoral career. Before this transformation to this new paradigm, I saw the church 
in the same terms that human beings worldwide and maybe even specifically here in America, I saw the church in the same way we classify people and we do classify people. So I saw the church in these terms. There was the white church. There was the black church. There was the Asian church. There was Latino church and so forth. Whatever your group was, you can have your own church. How wonderful is that, right? And so, and so I, I, I visualize that everybody had their own church. And the reason that that paradigm fit me so well, because it fell within my sociocultural uh, construct of the world. I was so conditioned to see race and ethnicity I, that I believed it quite natural for all Christians to do the same thing. In fact, I was not at all moved to think that there should exist any cross-cultural fellowship. You have your church, I have my church. You go to your church, I go to my church. We don't have to cross at all. So when I think about that, I didn't think that there even was a necessity for multicultural expressions in a local community of faith. Now, as I say that to you and look at your faces today, I suspect that I'm not alone in that. That there are some of us in here today, quite unintentionally, grew up in the same paradigm, with the same understanding of church. We just didn't really connect with people that were not like us. Maybe they didn't live in our communities or whatever the case may be. Or maybe it was just simply because of this thing called culture and the nuances that come out of culture. So some of this was due to the fact that I expected everyone to contextualize or hear the gospel of Christ solely based on their particular racial or ethnic distinction. For me, there was little need to see the church as one unit. And this is interesting because even in the light of clear biblical teaching, I was still kind of resistant to this concept that there was one church. So what happened is I contextualized myself into this box. Now, when you look at what, what contextualization is, it just simply means the way in which we perceive and receive information based on our own culture, our nuances, our upbringing, and all of those kind of things. And all of us do some degree of contextualization. And you can, you can know this by looking at how various ethnic groups uh, do things like greet one another. Some of you may be familiar with the fact that, that many, uh, or, or the, the Japanese culture, uh, there's a greeting that involves bowing. That is, that is a, a contextualization of how they greet one another. And so contextualization happens throughout humanity. But here's the issue. Contextualization, we must be careful that, that, uh, that it does not compromise biblical truth. Because it will become problematic. When contextualization limits us in, by, in the manner by which 
we view the kingdom of God and the people in it. For example, contextualization of our message should never lead us to a position of prideful superiority in ourselves or shameful marginalization of other believers. One of the dangers of contextualization in, in, our, in our message, in the way in which we worship, one of the dangers is, is that we, we are tempted to think that we are better. And the question is, are we really? Are we really better because our context is different? Now, I, I, I succeed pretty well in the context in which I grew up, grew up in. And I used to say this to our church all the time, and, and, and it was things like, if you take me and put me in a Russian Orthodox church, I don't work as well. I don't speak the language. And if they give me the incense thing, I might swing it too far. Calm down. Don't swing the incense too far. And so the, 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 the question becomes, how then do we see ourselves? How do we see others and their context and their understanding of, of their relationships with God? So what happens when you actually seek God on this? Do we think that God is pleased, brothers and sisters, that we have hundreds of denominations in America alone. We are divided by all sorts of things. And some things are critical, like theology. We want to make sure that we have right doctrine and right teaching. That's very important. But some things that divide us are so incredibly mundane. I go to the purple carpet church. I go to the red carpet church, and there's no way in the world that carpet should ever be purple in a church. It's in the Bible. <laughs> and you hear these kinds of things, and they get repeated in culture as if they're actually the Word of God. And I call those fireside scriptures. Stuff people kind of made up over time, and they became a part of the fireside gathering. You know, the Bible, they usually start like this. You know, the Bible says. And so this idea, this idea of who we are in God and this division that God has or that that we have placed inside of God's church. I, I suggest to you today that God is not pleased with that. I've searched the scripture. Now, I've never seen the words white church or black church or Asian church or Latino church in Scripture. Doesn't appear, just one church. And so we're going to share that with you today and bring that, bring that to, to, the, to the forefront of our thinking. So the critical transformative moment in my personal growth regarding my view of the church, it happened when I sat down, seriously prayed, studied scripture, and get this, actually listen to the Holy Spirit. How's that for a novel idea? I soon realized in this process 
that my view of the church was not exactly the same as God's view. While I remain prepared to acknowledge other believers as brothers and sisters, I still place this acknowledgement at what I would say would be a comfortable distance. I knew that Christ had placed me in this family of every nation, made up of every people, of every language. But I was doing very little to meet my new family. How many people in here have some family members that are harder to love than others? Just throw, no, no, don't, don't raise your hands too high. Some of them might be here. Just throw it up real fast like that. Don't let them see you. You've got, and, and the saying goes, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And so you may have some, some, some family members that are more difficult to love, that when you get on your knees to pray at night, you may have to ask God, Lord, expand my capacity to love Cousin Bill. <laughs> And so, and so we, we have people that are in our family that we have, to, we have to expand our capacity to include them in the love that should be existing between family members. And so in this, in this, in this is where I found myself. I found myself knowing that, that I had this family, but I wasn't working too hard to get to know them. What I did not understand early in life, and I've come to understand as an adult is that there exists a dynamic relationship between perspective and the world in which we live. I realize that each of us possesses this innate ability to see things in a certain way through a particular lens and we interpret what we see in a particular manner. What I've also come to thankfully realize is that God has his own unique and infallible perspective, often seeing things very differently than I do. I'm grateful for that. I am because I'm not sure that I would see some folks the way God sees them. I'm grateful for the grace that he gives. I'm not even sure I would see myself the way God said. <laughs> there are times when I, I say, God, I say, you are really patient with me. And I'm so grateful for that because I don't deserve that level of patience. And so we understand that God has this unique and infallible perspective. And, and, and let me throw this in for free. No charge. How many times do we ask God to come where we are when we really ought to be trying to go where God is? You ever think about that? Lord, come into our presence. The Bible says go into his presence with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Enter in to the presence of the Lord. And we always say, Lord, come be with us. God says, I, I, want, I want you to come be with me. I want you to have my perspective. I want you to see things the way I see things. So, so, so how does God see the church? How does God see the church? Specifically, how does God see believers, those of us who commit our lives to him, and endeavor to live the gospel of Christ before the world? What is God's perspective? 
I'm glad you asked. There are three theological concepts that will help us understand this morning God's perspective. The first one is diversity is God's creative intention. The second thing is, is that in the New Testament, Paul, the Apostle Paul, has a certain view of ethnicity and diversity. And also, the last one is, is that the Apostle Peter then rolls out or unveils this concept of a new culture of oneness or a new culture of one. So let's look at these three things together, shall we? If you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 10, we're going to spend just a couple of minutes here if you'd like to, to go along with us. I always like to see people opening their Bibles and read it, then they know I, I didn't make it up. It's good. Okay. Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 10 demonstrates for us the continuation of human growth, population, and development. And this is happening after the great flood. Prior to the flood, we had Adam and Eve and, and all of the, the, the human beings that were on the earth, and we weren't doing so well prior to the flood. And God says, it's time to control, alt, delete humanity. Computer folks get that, don't you? We need to reboot this thing. Not because God messed it up, but because we did. And so God is now offering humanity another opportunity. But the beautiful thing is, is that we're still connected to Adam and Eve. And Genesis 10 takes us down that path of how humanity continued to grow after the flood. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, and this is talking about Noah's, you know, Noah had three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And this is talking about Japheth's family. He says, from these, the coastland peoples spread, and pay attention to this, in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. Now, if you go to verse 20, look at what you read. It says, these are the sons of of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. When you go to verse 31 and 32, here's what you read. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And verse 32 says, These are the clans of the sons of Noah. Three sons of Noah, three different groups, three brothers who all fathered these three new groups of people. Diverse in where they lived, diverse in the languages. And he says, these are the clans of sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations, or or from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. 
And so nations began to spread and emerge. And, 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 and this happened after the flood. And so God had this wonderful creative intent to spread human beings throughout the whole earth, which if you go back to the beginning, he told Adam that I'm going to give you dominion over the earth and I want you to be fruitful and multiply. And here's what, what, what we see this happening. In these passages, we see the onset of a diverse human population. Ethnicities are emerging. Languages developing nuances. And into these groups, into these families, children are being born who will learn the culture of their families, who will learn the, the, the connections that they have to one another. So what can we deduce by this? We can deduce that God designed diversity by intent. Diversity was not an accident that caught God by surprise. He didn't wake up one or he didn't look down one day and say, how'd they get here? I didn't intend to make blonde haired people. Something must have went horribly wrong. I'm kidding, blonde haired people. We love you. <laughs> so, so we can deduce that God really created this diversity by his intention. It was his plan to do so. But there's something else that we can see here. We can also see a wonderful plan of God to create a new nation or ethnicity from this diverse world. And, and pastor and theologian Tabidi Anabwale, you know, does a, a really good job explaining this, probably a much better job than I'm going to do. But it, it, is, it is a real, uh, a, a, a real great thing or, or to see, a wonderful thing to see how God is creating this new nation. When you move past Genesis 10 and go into Genesis 11 and 12, you see a man by the name of Abram emerge. And Abram, the Bible says, is from a place called the Ur of the Chaldees. He's Chaldean. And Tabidi says this, it's, it's kind of funny. He says, he tells all of his Jewish friends, did you know that the first Jew was a Gentile? Think about that. So in chapter 12, God kind of arrests the development of Abram. And he says, come out from among all of your kindred. All of the people that are like you. Leave your father's house because I am going to make out of you a great nation. Now, one way you really know that you're not God is because only God can change somebody's ethnicity. <laughs> Think about that. Abram woke up that morning. He was as Chaldean as he could be. By the time he went to bed that night, he had to look at his wife. I think I'm a Hebrew now. <laughs> Something happened to this man where his name even went from Abram to Abraham. And God makes this great promise and says, out of you will be a great nation. And, and they will number more than the stars in the sky. 
So God is nation building. Now, here's another thing I'll throw in for free. God did not change Abram's ethnicity to a black Hebrew, a white Hebrew, an Asian Hebrew, or even a Chaldean Hebrew. He simply made him a Hebrew. That's it. There was no other designation attached to it. I am going to make out of you a great nation. And in order to do this, I have to evict you from the culture that you're in. Remember that. We're going to pick that up later. I've got to get you out of this culture of, of Chaldean and around your family and all these things because Because in order to really get you where I want you to be, you have to get away from these influences. Culture influences us, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Culture influences us. And so he changed his nationality. Now, let's look at the second thing here. What what does the Apostle Paul have to say about this? And we'll get into Peter as well. But I want you to understand that when we look at the New Testament theology of diversity within and among the people of God, it really centers on two apostles, Peter and Paul. And I would like to address both of their perspectives, but not through the narrative of their experience in the book of Acts, which I hope you go back and read at your own leisure. But, But I'd like to address it through the principles each of them wrote under the direction of the Holy Spirit in their, in their epistles, in their letters, because they were dealing with principles. The book of Acts gives us wonderful narratives of how Paul was called and immediately uh, became this on fire for the Lord, ready to, to go to the, to the house of Israel first. They booted him out the synagogue, and he, and he, but he didn't stop preaching. He preached to anybody that would listen. So he, he became the apostle to the Gentiles. And, and how Peter, in Acts chapter 10, which is the longest narrative in the book of Acts, Peter had this experience at Cornelius, with, with God first, and then at Cornelius' home. That, that kind of had an impact on his view of ethnicity in this new paradigm that God would, had created called the church. And so, first let us consider this, this fact. That the theology of ethnicity in the Bible is deeply rooted and stands upon the fundamental principles of love and the universal unity of believers. Those two things undergird the theology of diversity in the New Testament. Love and the universal unity of those believers. Where do we get this from? Well, let's think about what our Lord Jesus said. In John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, he says this. He says, love one another. Love one another. He's talking to his folks. Love one another as I have loved you. We don't get to pick and choose how we love each other. We are challenged by our Lord to love one another the same way he loves us. Now, that's going to that's going to break down some barriers for you, because when you think about how God loves you. 
on your worst day, when you are at the end of your rope, you have had enough, you don't want to see another human being walk through your door. On that worst day, God says, I love you so much, I sent my son to die on the cross for you. On that day when, when you have looked at your caller ID and know that it's somebody that's going to ask you to do something. <laughs> I'll send that one to voicemail. <laughs> On that day, God says, I love you so much that I was willing to sacrifice my most prized possession, my son, for your sake. So, so here, we, here, we, here we have this, this foundation of love that Jesus gives us. And, and, and the beautiful thing about that, when you, when you look at it, in verse 35, he says, by this, here's divine purpose right here, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. They will know, the world will know that you belong to me, not by the size of your sanctuaries, not by the eloquence of your pastors, not by the melodious sounds of your choirs and singers, but they will know that you belong to me because you love one another. That's how they'll know. That's how they'll know. They won't know because you put a WWJD wristband on. They won't know because you have a T-shirt that says, I love Jesus. They will know because you love one another. And so love is that one of those fundamental principles. The other fundamental principle here is the unity of believers. And there's divine purpose in that as well. If you turn with me to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Jesus is now praying for his people in this passage of scripture. And look at what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Look at somebody and say, that's us. So he's not just praying for those people that were following him around and, 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 and the disciples and the crowd that was listening to him preach. But he says, I'm, I'm praying now, Father, for those who will believe based on what they testify. And so he's, he, says, he says that they... May all be one. Look at that. That they may all be one. And here's the qualifier. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. God's principle of unity, just oneness throughout his whole entire family. And here my brothers and sisters, is this divine purpose that I mentioned. So that 
the world may believe that you sent me. Once again, there's nothing in there about the color of your carpet. The world will not know that the Father sent the Son until the church becomes one. You want to know why, Christians, we have so much problem in the world? Because people can, you don't have to be a theologian to tell that the church has trouble being one. You don't even have to be saved to know that. You think you have to be saved to know if somebody loves you or not? You don't have to be saved to know if it, when you come to, when someone comes to this door, if they're not greeted warmly, they don't have to be saved to know that this might not be the place where God is. So we have to be careful how we treat people, how we love people. If they come or they see us and all we do is criticize one another, this church against that church. And I'm not talking about theological differences. I'm talking about things like they held the C note too long. I believe in short C notes. You see what I mean? We have to understand that God has has this wonderful plan for us to be one because it has a divine purpose. That there's the only way the world will know that the father sent the son is that the church becomes one. Martin Luther King Jr. said this back in the 60s and 50s. He said the most segregated hour in America is is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. How about that? Here's somebody in the context of legalized segregation. And yet he says that the most segregated hour in America is not the hour that people sit at a, at a lunch counter or in a back room, but the most segregated hour is Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. That challenges us, doesn't it? So Jesus says there's a divine purpose. The world needs to know that you sent me. And he says in verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one. We are given the glory of God to help us become one because we can't do it without him. We have trouble becoming one in our families. Amen. For this cause shall a man leave his mother and his father and cleave unto his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. And for everybody in here who's married, let me let you know, the goal of marriage is not to be happy. It's to be one. There are men in here going, that's right, Pastor, that's right. I'm kidding. I'm very happy. That's just, I want to get myself in trouble here. But, but, but we, the, the oneness is our goal. When we come in together, come together as the body of Christ, our goal shouldn't be our own pleasure. Our goal should to become one with one another. And that's what Jesus is praying for here. He says, I in them and you in me, in verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. And again, this divine purpose of so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. 
How awesome is that? How awesome is that to hear that, that our unity is a testimony to the world of God's love? That the world may know. Now, all you Bible scholars in here today, you know something about the principle of repetition. If you see something in Scripture repeated, take note of that. Jesus here says almost the exact same thing that he just said in this prayer to his father. That tells us unity is an important principle in how he expects his people to treat one another. Now, let's look at, again, I promise you, we're going to talk about Paul. But I wanted to give you those, those underlying principles from our Lord. Now, Paul, in his, in his experience as a missionary to many Gentile nations, in that experience, the Holy Spirit directs Paul to write in Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 29. In verse 24 of Galatians 3, we read, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But, in verse 25, but now that faith has come. Look at somebody and say, faith has come. Just tell them, faith has come. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And I was taught that all means all. All doesn't mean a little or a few or select ones or those who hold a C note too long. All means all. So you are all, you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. In verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Verse 25, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Why would Paul now start talking about Abraham? Remember what I told you from Genesis 10, 11 and 12. God is into nation building. Israel wasn't the end of God's nation building effort. As God changed the nationality of Abram to Abraham, changed his name, and then changed him from Chaldean to Hebrew, he also wants to change the culture of us from sinner to saint. Yeah, that's a praiseworthy moment. That is, isn't it? That's a praiseworthy moment. So I came under Adam as this as this sinner. That was my culture. That was my distinction. I was born in sin, shaped in iniquity In sin. My mother did conceive me. I was I was a sinner by birth. And God says that now because you are justified by faith, you are now a new creature in Christ and old things are passed away. And behold, all things become new. And because you're this new creature, you are, praise God, an heir 
to that same promise that I gave to Abram in Genesis chapter 12. You are heir to being a part of this great nation. Israel was the demonstration project of what God was going to do with the church. Israel was the demonstration project of how God was going to bring together a new people of all different kinds of orientations and, 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 and ethnicities and languages. And he was going to bring them uh, different cultures into this one new nation called the church. So God's doing something in nation building. In addition, Paul drives home this point of unity for the church in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7, of how we are to relate to and consider one another inside the church. He says this, he says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. But watch this. Here he's talking about this principle of unity. And again, it looks like Paul is trying to shift gears on us. Because when you get to verse 7, he introduces this concept of grace. He says, but grace was given to each one of us. Well, Paul, what in the world does grace have to do with what you're talking about in this unity thing? Because God knows that we have such a hard time with unity, he places unity in the context of grace. And what that means is, That the same grace that it took to save the drug addict, the alcoholic, the criminal, the murderer. It took the same grace to save me, a seven-year-old in VBS. There's no different grace. God needed just as much grace over my life at seven As he did maybe over yours if you came to him in your 30s or 40s or 50s or later. It's the same grace. And that is a great unifying principle within the church. We know that none of us were saved by some just a little grace. I really wasn't that bad. Look at you. You're right. See, I I wasn't that bad. You know, I I didn't do that much wrong. But those people who are in jail, they are criminals. They, God, you really need to go down there and give them all your grace. No, no. It's the same grace. The same grace that it took to save me. That same grace saves them for all of us. And that's a great unifying connection so that none of us can get more prideful than we should be. 
This, this unifies us with, and this is why this issue of grace is put right here with the idea of one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one father, and one grace that saves us all. And that's given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, let's move on here quickly. The last thing, the last thing in, in, in terms of these three principles, let's talk about Peter for a moment. The Apostle Peter and ethnic diversity in the church, this, this idea of a new culture or a nation of one. As I told you, Peter had some unique experiences. And those of you who are familiar with Peter, he was one that probably should have been quiet, but he spoke up. <laughs> And when it was time to speak up, he was quiet. <laughs> so uh, his unique experience with Cornelius and his presence at the Jerusalem Council and his encounter with Paul regarding the Gentiles in Galatia, that gave him a unique perspective that developed a bit more deliberately than that of Paul. So I want to share something with you today. If, if, if you're coming along at a little slower pace with that, with this, it's okay. It's all right. Paul developed quickly. Peter a little more deliberately. But watch this now. Once Peter got it, he was all in 100%. Once he understood that this was God's design, this was God's plan, that there is one church. There's not a Jewish church. There's not a Gentile church. There's one church. And if you need a color, use red because we're all washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? one church. And so Peter, Peter, the Holy Spirit leads him to write in first Peter chapter two, verses nine and 10. He says in verse nine, but you are a chosen race. And the Greek word for race there is genos. And it means family. You are a chosen family. He says a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And the Greek word for nation there is ethnos. So you have genos and ethnos is where we get the word ethnicity. He says, you are a holy ethnicity. He's talking about believers. Isn't that right? He says, he says, you are ethnos is a multitude of people of the same nature or genus. A nation, he says. He says, a people for his own possession. Here again, you see divine purpose in God bringing this new ethnos, this new genos together called the church. He was doing it so that he could possess his own people so that we could be in his family so that we could go back to his original creative intent when he first said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. He's bringing us back to that idea right here in Peter, this new nation, a people for his own possession. Again, divine purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There is purpose in us being brought together. And that is to proclaim the excellencies of God. We are not to proclaim ourselves. We are to proclaim Christ. And so, so what's, what, what that means is, is that I'm not to elevate my, my particular cultural or ethnic distinctions 
over my proclamation of Christ. Because Christ supersedes my culture. That's going to catch up with you when you get home. Christ supersedes my culture. And so, and so here he says, watch this, and, and, and he proves it right here. Verse 10, he says, once you were not a people. You were not a people. The devastating effect of sin upon humanity meant that it robbed us of our personhood. God's, God, God didn't create us to be that way. Sin, sin infected humanity and we we no longer were a people but look at what he says but now because of this new thing you are god's people once you had not received mercy but now you've received mercy so bethel how does this look in practice we've heard the theory how does it look in action i think it looks a couple ways, and the first I think is important. It looks like us doing what Jesus did as described to us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Here's what, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But here's the key verse here. It's where it begins. Verse 7, he says, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What this means is, is that Christ emptied himself of his culture in heaven. Now, I know you love your family and you love me and you love everybody because we're in church and you got to say that. But look at this. How many of us would leave heaven? Of what we know about heaven, streets paved with gold, praising God 24-7 in the presence of the holy, around the throne of God. How many of us would leave heaven? And come down here for our favorite person. Let alone people we're still struggling to love. This is what Jesus did. He left the culture and the comforts of heaven and came to earth and says, I'm going to not lose my divinity, but I'm going to take my divinity and join a new group called humanity. And now... I'm going to be a servant. And he did that all for the sake of love. Verse 8 says, and being found, once he did this, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Look at the humility that is filled in the actions of Christ. If we want to know what this looks like, we have to humble ourselves. It's wonderful to be happy and proud of who you are. That's great. But that should never get in the way of the call of God on our lives to make sure that the church is one. He says he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even to the death of cross. Will you be willing 
to sacrifice those things like Jesus did, even if it costs you your life. Somewhere in the Bible I read, for whosoever will save his life will lose it. But those persons willing to lose their lives for my sake, the same will find it. So Christ saw value in us as he came to serve. We must see value in others not like us, especially those not like us. So how, Bethel, does this look? Let me give you an example of what happened one Sunday at Berean. You know, God, I I get up on Sunday morning sometimes and God just starts talking. And I have to listen. And the Lord said to me, we had a young lady that joined our church. Uh, She was married. She got married to a a, a guy, American, and, and she was from Korea and she didn't speak hardly any English. She was fluent in Japanese and, of course, fluent in her native language, but she didn't speak hardly any English. And, and I often said, if there was, there, was there ever any proof to me that love is a universal language, that couple was it. They would take their cell phones and translate to talk to one another. Imagine, see, some of the young people are like, that's cool. <laughs> but, but, you know, they would, they would do that. And, and so, so that Sunday, God said to me, when you get there, take your message scripture and you put it on the screen And you put it in Korean. And she'll be the only one in the whole building that'll understand it. And some of these folks who are here today were there that Sunday. They come in, they look, what's that? Look like Chinese or something. I don't know. And she came in and her heart was overjoyed because the people who she worshiped with thought enough of her and valued her enough to say that we are willing to sacrifice reading the screen in English so that you and only you can do this and know that God is speaking to you. See, for her to be with us didn't mean that we had to make her like us. That's assimilation. God's not calling us to make everybody like us. God's calling us to value who these people are. And when we go with Mission Them 2.0 into the north part of our county, what we must understand is that God is not calling us to make those in Gary and Maryville and Hammond and East Chicago just like Crown Point. As a matter of fact, worship's going to look a little different. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Worship's going to look a little different. The songs will be a little different. There'll be a blend. The families and people you see will be people that will be a little different. But we're going to value that, Bethel, because we believe that God has called us to take the gospel to every living creature in the world. Every human being, no matter what their ethnicity is. And so for us, how can we do this? 
I want every person here as the Lord leads you. Even if you think that you're not going to be a part of the Gary Initiative in the vicinity. If you're, even, I want you to sign up for Heart for the City 2.0 for the class. It's available online. We're going to learn how we love people that are not like us. Yes, it'll be a challenge. It's a, and, it's, and it's a challenge for me. It's a challenge for me. And it's going to be a challenge for you, but it's where God is calling us. We're going to not ask God to come where we are. We're going to ask ourselves if we're going to go where he is. And so I want you to sign up for that class. It starts November 3rd that on Sundays, on November 3rd. It'll be in the big room, and you can sign up for the class, and, and there'll be a syllabus up there. And it's going to run for a few weeks. We'll be off Thanksgiving week. But, but I want you to, to really get to know what Bethel Church is going to do. Come tonight to the Mission Them meeting if you want to hear a little bit more about what we want to do as a church, what we feel God is calling us to do to take this gospel into all the world. What changes lives, brothers and sisters, is not making people like us. What changes lives is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is needed in in communities where there are difficulties It's not for us to go in and say, we want you to be just like us, but to go in and say, we love you and Jesus loves you and we're willing to to, to come and value you because we want to love you the way God loves you. As I close, the brilliance, my brothers and sisters of God, creating people of different shades, hair texture, height, Facial features, sense of humor, no sense of humor. Ability to text message, no ability to text message. The beauty of God creating all of that diversity, the brilliance that God had when he did this is that it gives each and every one of us the opportunity to know the depth of real love, agape love, to love those who are not like us. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we are grateful today for your blessing of your word as you've spoken to our hearts today about your great love for all people, your great desire to see your church as one and become one so that the world may know that you sent the son and that they may know how much you love them when they see us love one another. Father, we are careful today to remember that there may be those who are feel a call to discipleship, to, to become a part of your family. I thank you for those today who are here in that circumstance. And we pray that they would find it right to want to be a part of your family. God, I pray for all of us that as we come along this way together as a church, we have the patience and courage to love one another through this process and to recognize that some of us may go a little faster and some of us may be a little more deliberate. But when we get there, we'll get there together and be all in for you. This we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.